From Washington, this is the Robert Christian Show. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, we are pleased to have you on board and on tap for today's live show. If you are on Facebook by chance, hey, do a favor and let your friends, your neighbors know, and, and those that are around you know that we are on the air. We have a, a an inspiring uh, guest today on the live show. Um, and y you know what? There is... I would I would love to say there are very few words to describe our guest today, um, but a lot of folks will remember him from a 1970s show uh, that was on television, Shanana. We are joined with Bowser, um, and and you know uh, John, it is a pleasure having you on board for the live show today. How are things going for you? Everything is as good as it can be, Robert. Um, you know, I'm sitting here in beautiful central California. Um, haven't gone far for quite a few months now as we're in the middle of this pandemic. And uh, But I'm still continuing uh, my work, especially a lot of political work. Not a lot of shows, but I wouldn't be doing a lot of shows now anyway because of the election. I generally take... Uh, you know, a goodly period of time off in a big election year, and there's never been an election year bigger than this one. So between March and November, I wasn't really planning on doing any, any shows anyway. But I also wasn't planning on being, uh, you know, in the, in the middle of a pandemic that uh, has affected everybody worldwide, but in this country, worse than anywhere. Well, you know what, John? This is this is really an unprecedented year, um, and and I, as well as a lot of Americans, are are, are screaming and saying, "Will twenty twenty ever end?" Um, and now, good John, question. go ahead. No, good question. Uh, <laughs> it 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 had better it had better end, and it better have a good conclusion. Well, I get, uh, because otherwise we're, we're, I don't know that we'll have a country to live in. Well, John, this is this is a this is the I guess the sentiment of of a lot of people, and I've seen this posted two or three times, <clears throat> hundred times, on like Facebook and on Twitter, um, and because now we are in the the final stretch, the final one hundred days of Donald Trump's regime. Um, that's what, what I would have to call it. Um, and so I think that it's going to be the, the, the longest 100 days in American history. <laughs> very, very possibly. <laughs> so John, very possibly, I mean, I'm awfully busy during it. So, uh, I think it's going to go by rather quickly actually for me because I've got so many things that I'm involved in, um, that are part of putting an end to this to this four-year-long misery. Misery is almost an understatement. Well, John, let's let's go back um, uh, in history just a little bit. Um, I want to talk just just briefly, anyway, on um, your your time with Shanana, the group, and bring sure. you from the '70s and bring you up into the 2020 to find out what you're doing now um, on the political landscape and why that this election to you is is so vitally important. Um, 
maybe as a good uh, um, uh, eye-opener or awakening moment uh, for some folks to um, to think about between now and Election Day. How does that sound? Perfect. John, you <laughs> you are absolutely legendary, and you still are so legendary. Um, how did Shanana? How did they start? Well, the group started at uh, Columbia University in, in 1969. Uh, a very turbulent time, another turbulent time in American history. 68, 69. And, uh, you know, the, the sociological reason the group started has long since been lost. But I do think it had to do with, you know, Columbia in 1968, in the, in, in the middle of, the, of it was a tremendously turbulent election in 68. Um, the buildings had been occupied on the Columbia campus in 68 and 69. Um, but 68 especially, that was the year I graduated, and it was a year of tremendous turmoil. Um, come, come the summer of 69, uh, I think there was a need for, for something lighter and um, also a need to reclaim. We, we grew up awfully fast, those of us who were in our early 20s uh, in the late 60s. And I think there was a need to reclaim our own childhood a little bit. Uh, you know, it seemed like it was another lifetime ago. And especially the, the really, you know, innocent and, and, you know, sort of bizarre songs of the early 50s, of, 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 the, of the 50s, uh, like Teen Angel and Tell Laura I Love Her, you know, <laughs> When those were reclaimed in the late 60s, they seemed like they came from another planet. No so. doubt. Uh, you know, I've got to admit, all right, John, I I, I still to this day enjoy um, uh, listening to 50s music. And, you know, the, the doo-wah days. I mean, I will, we have uh, Sirius in the car, uh, Sirius XM, and... And I will yeah. turn I will turn on uh, the fifties uh, station, and when I can, crank it up just at least a little bit, you know, because I have always really enjoyed that era. That's when they made music, John. Um, this stuff that they have. And to I understand that. I understand that sentiment. Um, you know, I don't. I don't totally agree with it. You know, I think there's been a lot of good music made since. Um, I do have a you know, some trouble with some stuff, you know, and I, I think more recently, I don't know, maybe there's a little bit of a deterioration in, in skill levels. Um, there's certainly not a deterioration in technology. There's actually an explosion right. in technology. But I almost think those two things have a, something to do with each other, that uh, I think maybe the explosion in technology might have discourage some people who are less good at technology but might be really good at music um, from really pursuing things. But that's a whole other, you know, track of conversation. Getting back to when Shanana began, uh, you know, I think reclaiming the music of the 50s and the early 60s, which was a very much, a much more innocent style of music, 
but so was the beginning of rock and roll. And we tried to reclaim every style. Um, you know, I'm, I'm really just communicating that some of the songs that were the more ridiculous songs of the 50s actually hit, hit like a rocket, you know, in the late <laughs> 60s, because our sense, especially among, you know, I like a bunch of Ivy League college kids was like, wow, these songs really exist. Yeah, remember this? This was really bizarre. I mean, well, you know, uh, looking at the face of some of the some of the the um, uh, audience members today, when you would go out and and you would uh, reminisce or sing uh, some of the old tunes that you guys used to sing, um, I would imagine looking at the facial expressions of some would would almost be just hysterical. Um, like, where did this guy come from? Did they really sound like that back then? Um, <laughs> well, I mean, we, we had all lived through it. It wasn't, after all, that long ago. I mean, no. In, in 1969, you know, when when uh, when Shadana started, the, the, the 50s ended musically in 1964 with the British invasion, you know, kind of when the Beatles started. So it's only five years before that. You know, you have a lot of the songs that were classically 50s songs, like Duke of Earl, you know, it was 63, you know. The, the Righteous Brothers were recording their stuff in 64. Um, you know, it was definitely the previous style. But uh, there was also such an explosion in musical styles in the late 60s where you had everything coexisting. You had, you know, hard rock and country rock and folk rock and, and psychedelic and, you know, pick, pick a thing. Uh, it was a tremendous time for music. But when we began to relook at the music of the 50s and the early 60s, like I said, it seemed like it came from a different lifetime and maybe even a different planet. <laughs> so uh, our audiences in those early, in the early years of Shanana were were mostly people like us, um, you know, college kids who who had the same feeling, who were getting the same feeling from reclaiming this music that we were in putting it out there. And you know, I created this Bowser character as as you know, this is a part of it that I'm sad has gotten a little bit lost. I recreated the Bowser. I created the Bowser character as a look at the greaser of the '50s through the eyes of the late '60s, early '70s, <laughs> and I didn't really mean it as a glorification of the greaser, who, you know, were largely people who, when I was trying to go to the Juilliard School of Music when I was 12, you know, and I went there on Saturdays to the preparatory division. You know, I had to go to a bus stop outside the Surrey Luncheonette, and mostly the greasers, you know, high school greasers who were older than me would try to kick my Juilliard books down the sewer, and if it was in the winter, they would try to strangle <laughs> me with my earlap. You know, I didn't love them. <laughs> they were not like, I wasn't really trying to glorify them. I think we were trying to get past that. And past, you know, a certain kind of aggressive bullying that's still going on to this day. Well, John, I've got to say, back then, though, you were uh, the, the, the character that, that you were um, in the group. Uh, you were absolutely the the ultimate greaser of all time. Sure, but it was also kind of a spoof. You know, I was, <laughs> I was getting revenge. I was getting revenge on the, on the guys outside the Surrey Luncheonette who used to kick my, try to kick my Juilliard books down the sewer. Um, but at the same time, I turned them into my fans. 
So it was a complex relationship. Well, absolutely. Now, you know, I did read somewhere, John, that that uh, Sean and I actually uh, sang at Woodstock. Is that is is that real? Oh, sure, sure, absolutely. That was the beginning of the whole of the whole thing in '69. Although I hadn't joined the group yet, and most of the people that you were familiar with in the group from the Sean and I TV show hadn't yet joined the group um, when when. What happened was because the group started in college in wow. the in the spring summer of '69 and evolved out of another singing group called the Columbia University Kingsmen, which stood around in a semicircle and wore blue blazers and gray slacks, and I and sang songs like "Oh, I Love the Halls of Ivy," which could not possibly have been more irrelevant in the late '60s. <laughs> so that was the evolution of Shanana. And then a lot of the guys who were in it from from the Columbia University Kingsmen, <clears throat> you know, ended up, they were graduating. So they had to decide, like, what am I going to do? Am I going to run around with this, you know, we just played in Woodstock now. Am I going to run around with this rock band or am I going to do what I intended to do in the first place? So uh, most of them opted to, to follow whatever path they had intended, you know, to be on. And I actually replaced a guy named Alan Cooper, who was the first bass singer of Shanana, who ended up being the provost, I believe, of the Jewish Theological Seminary in Manhattan. Um, wow. You know, another guy quit and went into his father's business. Another guy quit, you know. All, all the people who left early went ahead and, and did what they had intended to do. Well, if it wasn't for music, John, and 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 you starting that and and going just going for broke and and saying let's have fun with this, right? Let's just see where where it takes us. Um, if it had not been for that um, move and decision in your life, what would you have wanted to have become? Okay, so the people who left the group early on were almost universally replaced at first by other Columbia people like me and screaming Scott Simon, the piano player. Um, you know, Joe Whitkin, the original piano player became an emergency room physician. Screaming Scott Simon came in and replaced Joe Whitkin and he had screaming wanted to be in show business and I wanted to be in show business. So I had already graduated in 68 and I had done a bunch of off Broadway shows as music director, I was in some of them. I acted in some of them. You know, I was taking any job that I could that kept me on the track, you know, with I had sort of lateral kinds of skills. You know, I could do a lot of different things. Maybe <laughs> not that well, but I could do a lot of different things. So um, when these friends of mine from the Columbia University Kingsmen, you know, called me and said, hey, Alan Cooper's leaving. Do you want to be, you want to be in the group? I was kind of the going bait singer on campus. I'd done a lot of theater. You know, I was probably the logical choice. And they'd already done Woodstock, and I thought, oh, this sounds like, it's, you know, these guys are succeeding in some way or another. We were still just an opening act. But, um, you know, we were professional, and, you know, we did gigs at the Fillmore East and, and, you know, the Fillmore West, for that matter. We were started to travel. I had never traveled the country. So 
for me, I thought it was a good opportunity. Little did I know we were going to build ourselves up into this really big thing, ultimately end up with our own TV show, be in the movie Grease, and, you know, that I was going to continue the character that I started for basically my entire career. But, uh, you know, I, had, I did intend to be in shows. If I hadn't gone into show business, I probably would have been gone into the law or something like that. I was a music major and English minor, and I do have a pretty good legal mind, I have discovered. Um, you know, so I probably would have done something in the law or in politics where I'm working, doing a lot of work now. And I did a big project that combined these kinds of skills called truth in music over the um, over the time time period of about 2005 to about 2012, really. Um, I did a lot of work on, on truth and music that combined some legal skills. I got law passed in 34 states to get rid of what we called imposter groups who were preying on the names of mm. old-timers like the Drifters, the Coasters, the Platters, and performing and pretending to be those people. So uh, that was a good combination of the kind of skills that I think, think I had. Now, John, the, but I was very happy to have a career in show business. One one last question: When it comes to to show business and and being an artist, um, uh, a musical talent um, like Shanana has been um, uh, in its history, uh, but PBS, the public broadcasting uh, uh, system. Um, periodically, I, as I remember, it's once a year, maybe twice a year. They will bring in some of the old uh, musicians and groups from from yesteryear um, to go on stage uh, for a, a massive fundraiser for the entire network that they do. Has Shanana ever been um, uh, affiliated with that or invited to participate? So, if you look closely back at them, I hosted the last. Four of them, I think, of the um, of the doop. The last one was called Doop Discoveries, but that entire doop series on PBS, I think I hosted the last four of them. Wow! Um, you know, as as actually John Bauman, not as Bowser. Right. Uh, <laughs> John was never involved in them. You know, I've been doing Bowser's Rock and Roll Party since. 1987 and Bowser's ultimate doo-wop party since 1987. So after I left the group in the early 80s, I did a bunch of TV. I hosted a bunch of TV, did some game shows and stuff like that. Um, was on Actually, one of them's running right now on something called Buzzer TV. Okay. I think you mentioned it's called Match Game Hollywood Squares Hour. Yep, yep. But I I saw no reason why I shouldn't do the Bowser character again in the late 80s because it really was fun. So I put together a, a different group and have really been doing that ever since. And we do shows all over the country. And, you know, I hire a lot of the old timers. That's what led to the whole Truth and Music project because I saw how ravaged a lot of the old timers really were by having their identity stolen. So I took it upon myself to try to fix it. And, you know, largely succeeded. But, uh, yeah, I've been doing shows all over the country as Bowser's Rock and Roll Party since the late 80s, including hosting those um, 
it was three or four of the of the uh, my music series doo-wop specials you know i remember you know as a kid watching uh sean anna on on television and and john you know even uh with uh you know, with what we've been talking about in your career, um, it, to me, it, it's awesome because um, uh, you, the group, the, the the era, the time that all this was, was happening, um, even before the show, the, the TV show um, happened, there was an, uh, an awful lot of, of protest, right? Ladies and gentlemen, follow me with this. There was an awful lot of protest in, in America back then. And here we are now, John, in 2020. And we're seeing uh, an awful lot of protest. So I think because it, there are always things to protest. <laughs> you know, there it, it's it, it's very kind of unusual, I guess, John, because uh, you uh, in, in your life, your career, you've gone full circle with it. I've never changed a whole heck of a lot. <laughs> you know, my politics haven't changed a whole heck of a lot the entire time. And I don't really, I have to admit, I don't understand people who, who have. Um, I really do feel like we're fighting a lot of the same fights that we fought in the late 60s. You know, they're just different versions of the same fight. And they still need to be fought. And you know what? They're going to have to be fought for in the future as well. I think the truest perception of what really happens now having lived for 72 years is that people of goodwill fight these fights for as long as they can and then hand them on to somebody, you know, to the next generation to keep fighting that same fight. And slowly we inch forward. I do believe, I believe in, you know, Dr. King's statement that uh, the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice. Uh, I think that's largely true. And I think that during my lifetime, you know, we've made pretty good steps in certain areas, less good steps in other areas, you know, but, but yeah, we're still headed in basically the right direction. But, wow, every now and then you take the three steps forward and the two steps back are so brutal, like the ones we're experiencing right now, uh, that you just got to try to get through them in order to inch forward again. Well, John, you, you, live, a while. you live through, um, and, and I'm sure that you remember, um, uh, perhaps the Nixon administration and what happened with Nixon. Um, but I do. In in your opinion, um, I mean, I've got my opinion, but I want yours um, uh, in this. Who is comparing the two, uh, Trump or Nixon? You know where this is going. Who is the worst president? Not even close. <laughs> uh, not 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 even in the same in the same breath. And I do talk about this. You know, this comes up frequently, especially from younger people who didn't really live through Watergate. But, you know, the difference is that, you know, Trump is infinitely worse. There's never been anything like this, even close to this. You know, and at the end of the day, you know, Nixon clearly had psychological problems himself. He was paranoid. And, uh, you know, the, the Watergate burglary was, 
entirely unnecessary. I mean, the guy was, was ending up, ending, ended up winning 49 states in the 1972 election. What was the need to uh, burglarize the, the Democratic National Committee? You know, and as the tapes showed, he had severe psychological problems. Uh, you know, Nixon did. But at the end of the day, he was an institutionalist. He wasn't trying to destroy the institutions of the country the way Donald Trump is, is trying to do now with the aid of henchmen like Bill Barr, you know, right. undermining the entire democracy and turning it into a, basically a fascist state and, you know, dispatching troops to Portland, you know, to beat up on, you know, unidentified troops, you know, militia type individuals to beat up on on protesters you know the 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 nixon era was nothing like this no no comparison whatsoever uh you know nixon was basically a bad guy but even i didn't vote for him um in either 68 or 72 uh you know didn't agree with policies basically but you know, if you ask me objectively, do I think he had a horrible administration? No, it wasn't even that bad. He, he wasn't really, he was a worse person than he was a president. Well, I kind of wonder about Donald Trump and his mental uh, uh, stability. Uh, if he is really um, uh, psychologically fit for the office or really if he isn't Um you know, I think everybody has. I don't wonder has their... about that at all. I don't wonder about it for even one second. Um, you know, my wife is a psychologist, so we have a copy of DSM five in the house, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And if you look up narcissistic personality disorder in DSM five, you will see that Donald Trump checked every box for narcissistic personality disorder. He has a personality disorder. And yes, I'm an armchair, you know, I'm not, I'm not a real psychologist, but if you ask any psychologist or psychiatrist, they're going to tell you the same thing. I know, I know this because you hear it. I hear it all the time. Well, Johnny, um, here, here we are now in 2020, um, uh, 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 fast forwarding from yesteryear to today. I know that you are uh, very involved in, in the political arena. Um, have you personally ever thought about running? You know, I, I have been really, I think, effective since 2004, uh, working on senior issues and endorsing a lot of candidates. You know, I've gone to Florida every presidential since 04 and spent months at a time working that, you know, brutal swing state. Uh, but since 2010, I really have been working on senior issues more than anything else. So presently, I'm president of Social Security Works PAC. We endorse candidates nationwide. I went to 57 campaigns in 2018. Um, when it was necessary for us to flip the House to get control of at least one chamber of Congress so that we could stop horrible, more horrible le legislation from coming down the pike. Um, I really do think I'm more effective working that way than I would be as just, you know, another cog in a, in the legislature, let's say. 
Uh, but also partly at this point, at the age of 72, I think it would be awfully hard to start a, you know, a political career. I'm very happy with what I'm doing now. And I just completed a project that I'm really proud of called the Florida Democratic Seniors Organizing Council, where, believe it or not, no one's bothered to try to organize seniors in the state of Florida, the most senior-heavy state in America, and, you know, the most important swing state in every election, in a way. Um, so I just went ahead and did it, and then we've got 200 people on this council, and we're already making a big difference, uh, you know, in, in helping to win Florida for Joe Biden, which is what is necessary for November. What do you think about um, uh, Florida? And, I, I mean, back back when when bush was uh, the governor there and his brother um george was running for the for the office of the presidency and jeb decided to to stop the 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 recount of the votes um citing the 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 tabs the strings attached to all of these uh, uh voter uh votes and all the whatever you call them the chads back then i mean oh, that was mean- Go ahead. You mean you mean when you mean when the people who supposedly believed in states' rights and the supremacy of states' rights instead ran to the U.S. federal Supreme Court uh, <laughs> to decide an election? Yep. that's what you're talking about, right? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. It's one of the great hip, hypocritical moments of American history. Well, uh, yeah, that's. I remember that. Yeah. You know, the, the the shocking but very sad thing about it, and, and still to this day maddening, um, is that a lot of those votes were cast by senior citizens. And yet their votes in some cases did not count. And well, there's no question that that Al Gore won Florida. Oh in Absolutely, and and quite as it's kept, there's no question that the true winner of the last election was Hillary and not Trump. Well, that's a different issue in a way. Uh, you know, I am vociferous of late about the absurdity of the Electoral College. Uh, you know, 2000 was a little bit different thing where really Al Gore actually won the electoral college because he actually won florida but the um the election was decided again in the supreme court there's no question that in 2000 al gore got more votes nationwide you know he won the popular vote and history would have been changed and we never would have had a war in iraq most likely well for sure we never would have had a war in iraq maybe there may have been an action in afghanistan but certainly not Iraq. And thousands of Americans would still be alive because of that, uh, you know, in my opinion. You know, but these things change history. It it does bother me. It bothers me no end that there is no election in America decided like the presidential is, where you can really have the most votes and still lose. That doesn't happen anywhere else only in the presidential and it makes no sense what what is your 
what is your idea on the electoral college? Do you think it's time for it to, to go? Gotta be gotten, right. Got to be gotten rid of. That's that's absurd. It's I absurd. agree with and, you. And look, like a lot of, you know, it's a heavy lift to get rid of it because it's a constitutional change. But, um, you know, it's got to go. Uh like a lot of things in the look, the Constitution, U.S. Constitution, is a magnificent document for its time. I carry, I carry copy a copy of it. In fact, I have two copies of it in my in my Bowser suitcase when I go to do shows because I always have it in hand and I know what it says uh, and I I I have a great deal of respect for it. But on the other hand, it's also had to be amended you know, around 30 times. So it was never go perfect. And the founders were smart enough to realize that, you know, they did the first 10 amendments themselves uh, in the Bill of Rights. They were smart enough to know that it was not going to be perfect over vast periods of time. So to me, you know, this was one of the moments, the Electoral College was one of the moments in the Constitution where, at the end of the day, these were white male landowners who, you know, were pretty enlightened, but were still trying to protect their own interests and didn't quite trust the populace to make the best decision on a president and therefore created this electoral college where it could basically override, you know, a, a popular vote and, uh, yeah, well, you know, I, I look at the I look at the the electoral college, John, as as a measure to to suppress the American voter and what the American voters have voted. Um, it, it's not a popularity contest. It's it's not a reality TV show, unlike what Donald Trump may believe. Um, and well, that's what it was in to do yeah you're right that it was intended to be able to override the vote and you know what that that's real that's overstepping the boundary john that's that's overstepping the the well, power I, I, I of the almighty vote it's gotta go it's gotta go um you know and, and look no further than you know the simple the simplest way to put this and i don't even mean this as a partisan statement i mean it as just okay this is just wrong um Six out of the last seven presidential elections have been won by Democrats in, in the popular vote. And you re review what, what history has been. Uh, there haven't been Democrats in the White House six out of the last seven times. So that, that's too much. I mean, this is, you know, 2000 was one thing. In other words, this is going back now to to 92 with Clinton, 96 with Clinton. 2000, the popular vote winner did not win the presidential election. 2004, apparently the popular vote did winner did win. Uh, probably, maybe, kind of, it was close. And who knows what happened in Ohio. But let's give, let's give that one. 2008, the popular vote winner did win. 2012, yes. And, they, and it was Barack Obama, a Democrat. 2016, once again, and now by a bigger margin, you know, almost 3 million votes, the popular vote winner did not end up in the White House. 
Yeah, to me, I mean, that that's ridiculous. You know, suppressing the, suppressing your vote and my vote um, on behalf of or for the, the uh, empowerment of the Electoral College, that should be illegal. Well, it's got to be changed. But again, you know, the only way it's going to get changed is, is for Democrats to take control, like many other things, it's going to take Democrats taking control of all branches of government because, you know, the modern Republican Party is hyper aware that it, it, it can only really win things by suppressing the vote, uh, you know, depending on the, the trend is against them in every possible way. So the Electoral College has worked in their favor, you know, for George W. Bush the first time and for Trump. So they're not going to touch it. Well, now it. here, here we are now with a, with a, a an absolute nightmare uh, in the White House, and there there has been reports that that even Trump himself is not going to be willing to um, uh, uh, to leave the White House if he loses, unless he loses more or less the way he thinks he should <laughs> or would. <laughs> so okay. So what I say to that is is we should not be thinking about this right now. Here's what we need to do. We need to win and win big. Yeah. And the bigger we win, the harder it's going to be to implement that kind of scenario. If it's a narrow win, I don't think there's any question that, you know, Trump and Barr will try to figure out, yo, it's rigged, you know, so oh. Yeah, look at all these vote by mail, you know, it's all fraudulent, you know, it's like, there's no fraud in vote by mail proof any there never has been. So it's ridiculous. And in fact Republicans have voted way more by mail than Democrats have. This is just all a setup, you know, for for what you're describing for the, this possible scenario. But um, if it's a big win, they're not gonna be able to do it. If it's a narrow win they, they may try it. Either way, good Americans who understand that we're, just, that we're walking a path towards fascism right now, this unitary executive thing of Bill Barr, is just a path towards a tyrant. That's what it is. So if you don't want to go down that path and you don't want to live in a banana republic fascist country where there's one justice system for cronies of Donald Trump and there's another justice system for everybody else, you don't want to live in that kind of country. Pick yourself up right now. Do everything you can to make sure that Joe Biden wins in November, The Democrats take the Senate, The Democrats hold the House. Every contribution you can make, that's what you should be doing and not sitting around worrying or fearing or fretting about what might happen in the, in the transition best way to deal with this transition you know assuming hopefully joe biden actually wins is to win big john i'll tell you you know i i can hope and cross my fingers that not just does donald trump lose his shirt in the upcoming election and he is forced out um but that trump's enablers like the Mitch McConnells, et cetera, et cetera, um, uh, that they are also voted out. It's time to clean house. 
Um, uh, Trump said that he's going to drain the swamp. Well, he's the monster of the swamp. He is the swamp. They are the swamp. And there's a lot of projection. I mean, we were talking earlier about the psychological stuff. You know, projection is clearly the biggest tool of all these guys. It's like exactly what they're doing. That's, that's, this is how they do it. They just say, you're doing it. Yeah, you're doing it. Yeah, you're corrupt. You know, when this is clearly, by any measure, the most incredibly corrupt. I mean, it's a family. They're the Romanovs. You know, this, this family-run business. They're trying to cash in. You know, my biggest, my biggest honest guess about this, uh, about what you just brought up, Robert, is that I don't really think, especially if it's a pretty big win for Biden, I don't think that Donald Trump is going to, you know, be that resistant to leaving the White House. I think Donald Trump is going to say to himself, oh, you know, Trump TV, I'll start Trump TV. I'll, you, you can see he's kind of already setting this up. Mm. Oh, yes, he is. By, by critiquing Fox all the time, you know, by criticizing Fox News now. I'll start Trump TV. I'll I'll go after Fox News. I got a big following. You know, I'll cash in basically because all he's really interested in is money. He's only interested in himself. He couldn't care less about any of us in America. I don't even think he cares about his family. He just wants money. You know, the I think the the Mary Trump book is is pretty revealing about the psychology of of that family the entire time. And I think he'll just try to cash out. I think his biggest problem, frankly, is that he may end up in jail. Because there's nothing to say that the Southern District of New York is going to stop going after what are clear violations. He's individual one. Michael Cohen's in jail. Trump should be, too. Yeah, but, you know, I don't uh, think that it's right, John, for for Trump um, uh, or for him to to sick bar on the whole situation. And and for all of these players that were playing dirty to begin with and got caught um, for for Trump to say, oh, that's okay, we'll give him a pardon. Um, Oh, he was 70 years old and he'd be in jail for seven to ten you know, years. Um, That could be a life sentence for a 70 year old. I mean, come on. Um, you, you mentioned, it's funny, uh, because you mentioned uh, a, another network, Donald Trump actually tweeted today and he said this, he says, I was on air force one. I'd love to imitate the guy. Uh, well, I could imitate him. I was on air force one, um, flying to the great state of Texas. He says, I just landed. It's amazing watching, uh, Fox news how different that they are from four years ago not even watchable yet they totally forgot who put them where they are that's my point uh end of quote (laughs) i had to bring that up but john (laughs) you will go into competition with them you know if he can stay out of jail yes And you know that—that's to me, it's ridiculous. I mean, he is—he is very uh, narrow-minded. He doesn't want to take no for an answer. He doesn't want to. Um, I don't know what it is about this man, but he has the 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 idea or the audacity to think that what he is doing is so right, 
even with his with his um, uh, horrific um, dealing with the with the coronavirus, he still is not wanting to take any responsibility, but placing the blame on everybody else's head. That's how it works in a bit in a third world banana republic country. It's not very complex. I mean, this is the road towards tyranny. And, you know, it's a little extreme to say we're Germany in the 30s, but it's not that extreme. We're pretty close. I mean, they've done the best they can to destroy our institutions and to, uh, you know, stop congressional oversight of anything and, you know, to, to cash in themselves, you know, to, to be as corrupt as they possibly can, uh, you know, take as much money out of the presidency as, as the family can, uh, you know, and not care what happens to anybody else. So, I, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious what they're doing and i think it's pretty obvious why the guy's out of his mind and you know he has a personality disorder which he can't treat because the person he thinks he's great he right thinks the reason that he's a complete narcissist so he thinks the reason the reason that he's in power is because he's the greatest person ever to live ever anywhere Right. And, you know, he's completely full of himself in every possible way. So anything that aggrandizes him is all he cares about. And whether he's right, wrong, he's always right by his own definition. And he'll never seek psychiatric help because he doesn't think anything's wrong with him. Well, John, here we are. looking looking forward beyond uh, the November election, uh, for an example, if... That's a big word, isn't it? Uh, but if Trump actually was given, I'm not going to say that he won or would win, but if he was given uh, the the White House again, um, four years from today, what kind of a world do you think that America would be? Well, I think the country, we, we wouldn't have a country. I think there's no doubt about that. He's done enough damage. I'm actually surprised at how much damage he's been able to do to our institutions in this first term, considering that for the second half of it, he, he they can't do any legislative damage, you know, because the House is able to stop them. But another four years, you know, the country cannot withstand. We clearly have a justice system that is a third world justice system where, you know, Trump's cronies get one kind of justice and everybody else gets another kind of justice. And, you know, a lot of problems in the justice system predated Trump. So, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and everything that's going on that we see, you know, in the streets of, of American cities in terms of the policing, that, that's been waiting to be fixed for a very long time here. If you have this guy who's basically a fascist, you know, try, he, he's only going to make it a thousand times worse. We have things that we need to do to fix America that weren't even fixed before him, much less everything else that he's going to break having to fix. We, we cannot do that. We cannot afford, you know, another four years of this as a country 
period. Well, John, what do you think? What do you think it would take um, on a timeline, um, if you can sort of envision a timeline of of a, one year under Joe Biden um, and under a Biden administration? Um, how much of this damage that Trump has caused do you think uh, perhaps that Biden would be able to correct in the first year? That's one of my favorite questions of all, because I think people really have to take a cold, hard look at this and realize that an enormous amount of the damage that's been done can be corrected on the first day because because the legislative work, you know, their legislative agenda was stopped by the House in 2018. Most of this has been executive order stuff. And Biden can undo every executive order and put it right back to where we were at the end of the Obama administration, at the very least, the first day. And you know what? He will. We will turn everything around that can be done by executive order right away. Then we have to plug forward. We have to move forward and get to these things we haven't been able to get to and get to comprehensive immigration reform instead of this hatred of immigrants who built the entire country, who all of us come from, and get to systemic racism and really deal with systemic racism. racism. For the first time, this is, you know, Donald Trump didn't create systemic racism. He just made it worse. Well, absolutely. He's like the gasoline that you put on a fire. Right. But with control of the White House, the House, and the Senate, if we can get there, we are looking at a chance for a progressive leap forward of the type that hasn't happened since FDR. And you know what? I think Joe Biden, really, if you look at You know, I work on senior issues daily. Go to Joe Biden's platform for older Americans. It is really, really progressive. Progressives like it. It is good. Um, You know, Joe Biden's pretty good at, you know, not only is he just a decent person, which he is, and that's in a way the most important thing right now is changing the character of, of the country as as it's symbolized by the character of the person in the White House. But Joe Biden is very good at sensing over his career where the country is at, you know, and how far you can get and where you can go. And I feel like he is sensing, and his campaign is sensing right now, that you can go pretty far after what we've been through. That it's a moment, and it's a moment that we can seize and move forward in a great big leap forward, starting in January. You know, so John, I, really I, I, I look think at he's really good candidate for the moment. I look at at the upcoming election, and I hope that every other voter does too. In this way, um, that it is uh, a last ditch effort. To have finally in America a nice breath of fresh air. I think it's really saving the country, Robert. 
Oh, and, uh, I don't think that's an overstatement. You are not kidding, John. Um, but your work with seniors, I, I applaud you for that. Because, you know, ladies and gentlemen, um, there's a lot of the a lot of our, our our listeners that are senior citizens, a lot of them. Um, of course, not everyone, but I, we're, we're just progressive enough to be able to to uh, to, I guess, to to be likable by a lot of seniors, especially when it comes to social issues like so, uh, Social Security and protecting it. I've always said we've got to protect it, but the seniors are the most vulnerable in our society. And, and for those that are now knock on a little wood in our fifties, well, we're the next generation into retirement. So what happens today and what John is doing today is not just for the today's generation of, of seniors, but also for our own generation of seniors. And John, I can't thank you enough for your for your work uh, with that, with the Florida Group. Do you have a website, by the way, John, for the Florida Group um, that you're talking about? The Florida, the Florida Group so far is going to be folded into Seniors for Biden and Florida Seniors for Biden. So that's where you should go. But I work at Social so, Social Security Works PAC is what I'm president of. And there you can go on our website. It's easy. That's awesome. Cause, you know, John, I, I, I thank you for that. And it makes me so angry because looking historically at, at, at who is robbed from Social Security. Do you know, John? Well, you probably do. I'm talking to the choir. But, folks, there is not one branch of this government there is not one governmental agency that has not sent social security an iou to the tunes of several million dollars several hundred million shall i keep going and but these these agencies still are not repaying what they took now could you imagine Telling Social Security, John, oh, guess what? My group needs a million dollars, and we're taking it. We're not, we're not asking for it. Um, good luck with that, um, and no, no payback. How does that work? To be fair, to be fair, and I know we're coming to to the end of our time, Robert. Yes, but as an expert in this area, that's actually a, a bit of a myth, um, and people don't know this, but. You cannot raid Social Security. Um, no money has ever been actually taken out of the trust fund that hasn't been put back. That's not the issue um, with, with the program. The program can be easily made solvent. Look at John Larson's bill, Social Security 2100, a very simple way to make the program solvent until the year 2100. It's not that the program has been raided, it's, and it's not that it's going bankrupt. It's actually just that there needs to be reform to the cap. People stop paying in at $137,700. That's ridiculous. You and I and everybody else pay 6.2%. A Koch brother pays point zero 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 one percent that's what's wrong. Um, 
the program is easily made solvent into the next century. And uh, we need to do that, but we need to get control of Congress and the White House to do it. Well, John- and similarly, Medicare needs to be able to negotiate with drug companies to get lower prices. Well, I'll tell you what, I just like Mexico does, it's not hard. I I said what it is, John, um, as as sort of like throwing a monkey wrench in in a conversation in a in a in a kind of a cool kind of way, maybe, I hope, um, because I want to get people to start thinking, wait a second. Did they do it? A or B, did they not do it or C? What do I need to do to fix it? And John, that it's brings a common us... misconception. It's the most <laughs> common misconception that the trust fund is actually raided. It actually can't be raided by law. And you know, in a way, Al Gore in two thousand did everybody a disservice by talking about the lockbox. There's no need for a lockbox. There already is a lockbox. Um, yeah, there are a lot of myths that go around about these programs, but uh, you know, there's also a lot of important stuff to get out there. Oh, like he... people don't know that Medicaid, Medicaid pays for two-thirds of long-term care in America. Once Americans know that, they start going, oh, my God, wait a second, that's my grandmother. Wait a second, that's my aunt. Wait a second. That's right. Wait a second. That's right. exactly so, it. People have to be educated. Well, John, you know what? It has been absolutely a, a an honor beyond your wildest dreams to have you on uh, the live show. Well, it's really my pleasure. This has been a great conversation, and I do hope that everyone out there will do whatever they can. You know, and if you live in a blue state, I know the challenge of living in a blue state when you feel like, what can I contribute? Go to Go to organizations like Swing Left, uh, organizations that that specialize in helping people in blue states do something important in an election where they know their state is safe and they know, you know, but they want to be part of the presidential. You can be making calls into Florida and Michigan and Pennsylvania and Arizona and Wisconsin and North Carolina, the states that are really going to affect it. And it's going to be a virtual campaign, and everybody's contribution is needed. Absolutely, John. Well, hey, if you can hang on the uh, the line just for uh, about uh, two more minutes, if you can do that, that would be great. Can you hang on? Sure. Okay, hang on, John. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we have uh, had the, the honor uh, to speak with John Bowser Bowman. Um, from Shanana, talking about a, a blast from the past, but a blast into the future for America. Uh, you know, he brought up a lot of very good points. I, I've got John still on the line. I'm going to talk to him after the live show for a minute. But, you know, folks, this is the bottom line, is that we have an obligation. This upcoming election, let us remember what happened in Florida, the school shootings that happened in Florida that Trump did nothing about. Let's remember what happened in Charlottesville, uh, North Carolina, when he said there are good people on both sides, right? Let us remember the anger, the violence that has taken over America. And ask yourself, once again and once and for all, isn't America better than this 
Folks, I'm Robert Christian, and this has been the Robert Christian Show. Thanks for tuning in. And for those of you on Facebook, we love you. Download the podcast. Why not?